tonight we're going to be considering, as Lucas has already said, uh, this wonderful vision of Daniel chapter 7. And we've called it the vision of the wild beasts. It's a terrifying vision. It's a, a vision that is vivid and graphic. It's portrayed in uh, almost pictorial form, isn't it? It's described in ways that we can imagine. And I think it's meant to be imagined as we read it. It was definitely not a pleasant dream for Daniel at all. In fact, it was more like a horrific nightmare that he experienced. So, what did he see? We've read through it, I know, but sometimes when the reading's going on, you tend to switch off or just listen without taking it all in. Hopefully that's not the case. But let's go through what Daniel saw. I've blurred the bits out and we'll unblur them as we go through. So first of all, Daniel sees four winds of the heavens striving on the great sea and there's four beasts that come up out of the sea. The first one that he sees is this lion with eagle's wings. And then he sees that the wings are taken off and it's lifted up from the earth and it stands on its feet like a man and it's given a man's heart. I don't know how Daniel knew that it had been given a man's heart, but it became man-like in its behaviour. The second beast was a bear and it raised itself up on one side, it says. It was like a bear but a little bit different and it had in its mouth between its teeth three ribs the prey that it had devoured and and killed the leftovers and it was told to devour much flesh and the next beast that he saw in the background there on the right of the lion was this curious looking leopard which had four heads and four wings like a bird and it says dominion was given to it and then of course last of all the dreaded fourth beast this horrific monster that Daniel couldn't even use a a, a known animal to describe there was no animal in the animal kingdom that looked like this beast and it had iron teeth and it was aggressive and violent and, and vicious it was stamping and devouring and breaking in pieces And it was totally different to all the other animals that had come before. And it had ten horns. And then, as Daniel watches, three of the horns are plucked up and another horn grows in its place. It starts off small and it's got eyes and a mouth that speaks great things. And this is, you know, horrific, vivid imagery. These pictures of these beasts that Daniel saw, they weren't, you know, the usual sized animals. These were massive monsters that are emerging that rampaged over the whole earth and subdued and dominated the people of the earth. These are empire-sized animals and Daniel would have watched in awe and, and terror really as these animals had their way on the earth. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because in verse 9 we have this wonderful picture, it's almost like a happy ending if you like, to the dream. Daniel sees the thrones are set, the Ancient of Days sits down and a judgment is enacted, particularly on the fourth beast. It says that 
because of the great words which the horn, that little horn spake, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and it was given up to be burned. And the rest of the beast lived on in some curious way. They had no dominion, but their lives were prolonged. So you might think, well, that's the kind of like this awful nightmare and then there's a happy ending to it. And Daniel, up until this point, he's been... It's almost like he's watching a movie, isn't it? He's a, a, a silent observer on the side as this great drama is enacted out before him and all he can do is watch and wonder at what's going on. And Daniel, it says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 15, was grieved in his spirit. He was incredibly anxious. He was worked up and stressed and, and horrified by what he saw. The conclusion to the vision wasn't enough for Daniel. He wanted to know more. The visions of his head troubled him. And he came near, in verse 16, one of them that stood by, and he asked him, he said, tell me, tell me what's going on. What does this all mean? And the person who's standing there, an angel or a saint, someone who's, who's part of that wonderful company that's praising and, and before the throne of the Ancient of Days, he says, okay, Daniel, I'll give you some more detail. Verse 17, these great beasts which are four, they're four kings which shall arise out of the earth. And Daniel's thinking, yes, yes, but the angel or the saint continues on. The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So with this vision of the four beasts, I'm just going to show on the screen a bit of a chapter breakup because clearly Daniel had experienced part of the vision but there's more to it and, it, and, it, and there's a progressive amount of detail that's unfolded from this moment. So the start of the vision there in verse 1 and the beasts are emerging and then there's the judgment of the fourth beast and the kingdom of the Son of Man, it said, will come. So I'm emphasising things on the right-hand side of the screen as we go through. Judgment on the beast will happen in verses 9 to 12. The kingdom of the Son of Man will come in verses 13 to 14. And then Daniel asks the question and the first interpretation of the beast is given, which isn't really much, is it? There are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But then he's assured that the saints will take the kingdom. And of course, Daniel, he wants to know more. So he asks a second time, tell me more about this fourth beast. And he's given graphic detail. We're not going to cover this tonight. We're going to do this next week, the fourth beast. But we'll just go through it briefly here. This beast has, as Daniel speaks, he's describing it and saying it's got teeth of iron and nails of brass. It's devouring and stamping and breaking in pieces. And there's 10 horns and there's three that fell out and one of the horns has got eyes and a mouth. He speaks great things. He look, looks more stout than his fellows. And then there's more detail, because as Daniel's watching, something else happens. I watched, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. He targeted the saints, attacked them, and won, defeated them, until the Ancient of Days came. And then we're given uh, more information by the, by, the, by the angel. He says... Um, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom on earth. Now, in this picture, I just wanted to show you um, if I can zoom in there. Um, you can see a little horn there on the top of the, on the, top of the fourth beast. 
So the angel of the saint goes on and says, this fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. It'll be different from all the others. The ten horns are ten kings. They'll rise after them. They'll be diverse from the first. This, this little horn will subdue three. And then we're reassured again at the end of the vision that judgment on the fourth beast will happen. Get rid of that pointer. And the kingdom will be given to the saints. So at the start of the vision, you might say this is the vision of the wild beasts, but by the end of the vision, there's far more information given about the wonders and the glories that are to come. So instead of it being the vision of the wild beasts, as I've styled it here, it's really the vision of the triumphant saints. Look at the, the emphasis on what's being placed by the one that stood by that's talking to Daniel. Judgment on the beast will happen. The kingdom of the Son of Man will come. The saints will receive the kingdom. The judgment of the fourth beast will happen. The kingdom will be given to the saints. Incredible reassurance and incredible comfort comes from this wonderful prophecy. So Daniel sees not a vision of these animals that are out of control and rampaging through the earth, but he sees a vision that reassures him that God is in control from the beginning to the end. It's all part of his purpose and God has it all in control. So there's continual reassurance given, isn't there, to Daniel in this vision and to us as well, who are, you know, two and a half thousand years after the vision was given, reading this and enjoying it together. And it makes you think, doesn't it, particularly in times like this, if only we could keep our perspective clear and remember the words of hope in this book and in this chapter tonight. And once all the panic and the mayhem settles down a bit, we don't really know what to expect. We don't know whether life's going to return to the way it was two weeks ago or whether this is going to go on for, for weeks and months. We really don't know whether there's going to be times of economic uncertainty, whether we're going to lose jobs or really have to help to band together to help each other. How long are we going to have to isolate for? We really don't know. Maybe at the moment... It's a bit of a novelty, but as time goes on, I'm sure we're going to realise that we didn't really appreciate, perhaps, the fellowship that we take for granted in this place. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to meet together, to come here every week and remember our Lord together, and at the moment that's been taken from us to some degree. And perhaps as time goes on, maybe the world will return to some level of normalcy? And will we forget? Will we forget the clarity and the focus that perhaps we have now when things are uncertain, when, as Andrew said this morning, the, the certainty that we, we love to cling to is taken from us or, or it, it shakes in some way? Whatever the case, when we look at this vision together, we can be assured and have an inner confidence and joy because we can see that God from beginning to end is in control. We don't know why things like this are happening. We don't know his purpose at this stage, but we can have joy in our hearts knowing he is in control and that one day soon the saints will possess the kingdom and that everything will be okay. So let's have a look at the vision together now. I just wanted to say before we begin looking at the, we're going to look at the first three beasts tonight. Before we do though, we're told in verse 17, in case you're wondering what on earth these four beasts are, 
I've already kind of alluded to it in saying that they're empire-sized beasts. We're told in verse 17 that these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, even though they came out of the sea, the great sea, as it says in verse 1. But interestingly, we're told they're not, they're not just four kings, but they're the kingdoms that those kings ruled over. Because in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. So it's the kingdoms of men successively revealed that reign over the kingdom as such. The kingdom of men, a singular kingdom, and its phases as it goes through. Now, another thing that I wanted to note is that verse 17 seems to indicate that these four kings are going to come out of the earth after Daniel is standing there. Now, Daniel, it says in verse 1, is in the first year of Belshazzar, and he was the last king, wasn't he? Because he was slain in chapter 5 when the Medes and the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire. So this is the last king of Babylon that Daniel's receiving this vision. This is when Daniel is receiving this vision. It's at the end of the period of the, the epoch of, the, of the, the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. So if these beasts that have come up after, then the first one can't be Babylon. But I've just got a, um, a translation here, Young's literal translation, which really doesn't attempt to make things readable. It tries to portray things as they are in the original language, albeit it's translating obviously into English. And it says, these great beasts, they are four. Are four kings, they rise up from the earth. So in that particular translation, there's no hint necessarily that they're coming up afterwards. And when you think about it, it does make sense for the first of the beasts, to have some relationship to where Daniel was at the time. And I believe that they, that, that is the case. That's precisely the case. The first beast is the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria, as we'll see. So let's get into the vision now. And we're presented with the four winds striving upon the great sea in verse 2. What's this talking about? Well, just a couple of quotes that I've I've got for you to consider. The first one is in Jeremiah chapter 49 and verse 36. And it says, and it's talking about Elam, not Babylon, or not you know, the kingdom of men necessarily at this time, another nation, but the way it's used is instructive. I'll bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I'll scatter them to all those winds. And there shall be no nation to which these driven out of Elam shall not come. So these four winds are talking about God's power to scatter a particular nation and drive it to, as it says, the four winds of heaven, the furthest reaches of the earth. God's power, of course, extends over all the earth to the widest expanse, doesn't it? There's another quote here in Ezekiel 37 and verse 9. And we know perhaps this quote quite well. It's the, the valley of dry bones and... Ezekiel is told, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. In this particular case, God's breath is described as the four winds that are coming to animate 
in this case, the nation of Israel, to bring it together into the land and it stands on its feet as a great army. So in this particular case, the four winds, I'll put it up the top there of the screen, the four winds are the power of God to scatter or gather the nations according to his purpose. That's how they're used in the Bible and that's how they're being used here. They're operating on the great sea and they're bringing up, bringing together empires one after the other. And the interesting thing is, these hideous monsters, these beasts that come up, they're actually the work of God. He is in control, even to the point of bringing them into existence. That's how much God rules in the kingdoms of men. So what do we have to fear? No matter what happens, God is in control, isn't he? Now, Brother Thomas, he wrote many, many years ago, and he was talking about this particular chapter, and he says... The winds were not all blowing at once, but successively and at long intervals, and each tempest resulted in a change in the constitution and government of the kingdom of Babylon as represented by the beasts. So it just adds a little bit of information, doesn't it? And maybe he's just using his imagination, but if you just imagine this tumultuous you know, wind that's blowing with no particular direction, he's saying that's not the case. It's blowing with intent. And it's bringing up these beasts one after the other. And it's bringing them up out of the Great Sea. Now the Great Sea is commonly referred to, referring to the Mediterranean Sea in Scripture. And <clears throat> it's likely that when it's referring to the Mediterranean Sea here that um, it's particularly focusing in on that area that's adjacent to Israel and surrounding that, that sea. These empires extended wider than the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but the history of God and, and what he chooses to record is often, he often excludes certain details because he's interested and in honing in, in this case, on the area surrounding the nation of Israel and, and the things that are going to take place that affect them and his saints through history. So you might assume that because these beasts are four empires and they come up one after the other, that perhaps the first beast, uh, sorry, the second beast eats the first one and the third one eats the second one and the fourth one eats the third one. But that's not the case because in verse 12, it says that they're all still there at the judgment. The rest of the beasts had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So what's going on here? You'd think that an empire would come and an empire would go and it would disappear. But this is a picture, isn't it, of the kingdom of men morphing and changing in its various phases. And yes, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but they never fully disappear. Sometimes their, their culture, their ideologies, their, even the territories and the mix of people that are in those regions, they carry on some of the traits of the, of the empire and the, and the beasts in this case. And that's going to happen as, as and this is what the book of Daniel is describing here. From verse 12, we can deduce that these first three beasts, they still have a part to play even beyond the judgment seat. Though Daniel doesn't give us any detail on that. There are other places um, in Scripture. <clears throat> and just out of interest, I'll mention briefly, and I won't go into it at all tonight, but in Revelation 13 and verse 2, we have a seven-headed and a ten-horned beast rising out of the sea, and it's a bit of a hybrid. It's got a, 
He's got parts of a leopard, parts of a bear and parts of a lion and the dragon gives him his power and throne and great authority. I'll just use that as an example to show you that the characteristics of the leopard and the bear and the lion still have a part to play and, and they're still um, in the purpose of God despite coming and going. So let's move on to the first of these great beasts, the lion, which is seen here with the wings and it's, it's standing upright. It's about to have its wings ripped off as the vision described. So that's, um, and as we remember from the description there in verse 4, its wings were plucked, it was lifted up from the earth, it stood upon its feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. So what is this vision talking about? So it's a lion and let's have a look at how the lion was used in scripture. So as an example, um, maybe we won't turn to this one, but Nahum chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, Nahum is written about judgment that's coming on the nation of Assyria, Nineveh in particular. And you can see that picture that I've put up there of the Assyrian lion with the eagle's wings. That was a common symbol for the nation of Assyria. And at the time that Daniel is writing this, Assyria has come and gone. But the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon kind of almost merge in their purpose and, and they, they cross purposes at, um, at parts um, during the history of the kingdom of men. And I believe that's what's happening when um, <clears throat> this line is referring to as having eagle's wings that are plucked and removed. So the kingdom of Assyria, firstly represented by the lion with the eagle's wings, its wings are removed and it becomes the kingdom of Babylon. And let's turn up this quote here in Jeremiah chapter 50. Um, I'll assume that you're doing it, even though I can't see you doing it. My greatest fans here tonight are turning it up, which is nice. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Aaron. It's nice to have you here. Moral support. Okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. And my family. My family's come too. Even though Uncle Malcolm said they couldn't come, they're here tonight, so... Hopefully that's okay. All right, Jeremiah 50 and verse 17. This is a really clear quote. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria has devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. So you can see there, the lions are talking about Assyria and Babylon as these two lion powers that are destroying the nation of Israel, bringing the judgment of God upon them for their wickedness. And finally, let's just flick back to Jeremiah chapter 4 because we're in the same book. Um, This one, even though it doesn't explicitly mention the nation, it's talking about a nation that's coming upon Israel in judgment. So Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 6. Set up the standard towards Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction... The lion is come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate and thy city shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. It's talking about the nation of Babylon there which came against Israel and judged it and destroyed it and took away captives. So it's pretty clear, isn't it, from history that, and it makes sense even contextually because it's being delivered to Daniel who's living at the end of the age of this first beast, This beast is talking about none other than the kingdom of Babylon 
that Daniel was, was a living part of. He was part of the, the elite or the, the ruling class, exalted because of the purpose of God and his role to play in it. So as we mentioned, um, this lion begins with eagle's wings, but they are then removed. And I've got a couple of quotes here that talk about the wings of an eagle, and they can refer to a number of things. First of all, there's a couple of quotes there which talk about the pride of the eagle, which lives high up in the heavens, it says, in Obadiah, I believe. And then in Jeremiah 49, up in the crags of the rocks, it's a proud and lofty animal that, that lives up high, out of the way of the normal um, creatures that roam the earth. And there's a reference there to the pride of the eagle. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 28, perhaps we'll turn this one up. This is another quite famous quote, talking about terrible times that would come upon the nation of Israel if they disobeyed God, if they turned away from him. And this predicts the characteristics of a nation that would come against Israel should they turn their back on God. And it says in verse 49, The Lord shall bring us a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favour to the young. So the emphasis here in this passage is on the cruelty and the swiftness that this eagle can, can, can travel with. All these things were exhibited by the Assyrian power. <clears throat> There's also mention in scripture of um, <clears throat> the way that the eagle spreads its wings over a nation when it's about to attack them. And, and the wings therefore represent the dominion of that beast and its, its desire to extend and cover a nation with its wings. And there's a couple of quotes there in Jeremiah 28, uh, sorry, 48 and 49 that I've got on the screen. You might want to jot them down, have a look at them in your own time. So at the end of, if we come back to Daniel chapter 7 again, sorry to jump around a bit, but it says at the end of verse 4, after the wings are plucked, it stood up on its feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. This is an interesting little detail, isn't it? And it's one that I believe Daniel could have identified with immediately because I think it's talking about King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the great king who was... So in chapter 4 of Daniel, which is where this, this great drama unfolds, um, you may well know the story. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud and a mighty king. He was the, if you like, where Babylon reached its zenith, its peak. And all the accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar were amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar himself became puffed up with pride and he was warned to humble himself or else he would be humbled. And he didn't. He did for a time, but then he gave in to his pride and, and walked out one day in um, onto the top of his palace and he said, is not this great Babylon that I've built? And suddenly the judgment came. <clears throat> a voice came from heaven and spoke to him in verse 31 there. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. This is Daniel 4 and verse 31. 
They will drive thee from men, thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, they'll make thee to eat grass as an ox, and seven times will pass over thee. So he had to learn the lesson that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. Something particularly relevant to this vision in Daniel chapter 7, isn't it? And it says exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 33. He was driven from men, he ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, he was outside in a paddock or something, completely lost his mind. It says his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Interesting little detail, don't you think? Which does perhaps link in a little bit with this lion with eagle's wings, those characteristics of the eagle coming through in Nebuchadnezzar himself. And physically, as he was punished, his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his claws of his hands like bird's claws. And we know the story, don't we? After this, Nebuchadnezzar, his mind was opened and he understood, finally, finally he understood that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And this is the only chapter in the Bible that I can think of where a foreign king who ruled over a mighty empire wrote his very own chapter in the Bible. This is Daniel chapter 4. It's written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the chapter, we have this foreign king, this proud and arrogant and incredibly powerful king. And he is extolling and praising and giving glory to the God of heaven. And I think that's exactly what this vision in Daniel at the end is talking about. This beast unlike any other beast that came before it, it stood on its feet like a man and the king acknowledges the dominion and power of the king of heaven. In verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Particularly relevant, don't you think, to the vision of Daniel chapter 7. These beasts were in the hand of God. And they were but puppets in his hand, though they might walk proudly and and have dominion over all the earth. So let's move on to the second beast, this ferocious bear, this enormous bear that arises out of the Mediterranean Sea with um, a lopsided gait. It's got one side higher than the other. It's raised up on one side, as it says in verse 5. And it has three ribs in the mouth between the teeth of it. So what is this part of the vision talking about? What is this beast? So a bear in scripture is known to be incredibly ferocious, one of the most savage animals in the animal kingdom, Uh, particularly if a bear is robbed of its babies, of its whelps as it's called in scripture, They are savage and unstoppable. And if they're hungry as well, a bear is a ferocious beast to deal with. I'm sure Lucas could tell us all about that, being a Canadian and knowing all about bears and things, which roam the streets over there, I'm sure. A bear is also used in Scripture in Proverbs chapter 28. It talks about a king being like a lion and a charging bear over his people, if he's a corrupt and a wicked king. It's a horrible picture, but it's trying to convey the spirit of a wicked king. 
It's one that is, is selfish and self-seeking and cruel, if you like, without regard for those who are, who are subject to him and, and weak and perhaps unable to defend themselves. It's an interesting little, <clears throat> little note there of the characteristics of this bear um, and bears in scripture and how they're used. So this particular bear, it says it's raised up on one side, which is an interesting detail. And the kingdom that came after the nation of Babylon is frequently called the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's because the Medes and the Persians were quite closely related. The Medes came to power first and, and rose in power, but the Persians came up last and they were greater. And, and I've got a little um, snippet here from uh, Wikipedia talking about um, the empire of the Medes and Persians. It's called the Archimedes Empire. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but you'll forgive me, I'm sure. So Cyrus is the king of Persia and it says in this particular quote that he revolted against the Median Empire in 533. Now he's, um, is the king of the Medes at the time, um, Cyrus was his maternal grandson. I'm not actually sure what that means, but um, for those of you that have a mind for family connections, um, they were related somehow. <clears throat> So in 550, Cyrus completely succeeded in defeating the Medes and he captured Astyages the king and he took that capital of um, the Median Empire, Ecbatana. And then he styled himself the successor to Astyages and assumed control of the entire empire. And then there's an interesting little detail here in this article. It says that when he inherited the Median Empire... He also inherited some of the conflicts that the Median Empire was engaged in. And he notes here both uh, the empires of Lydia and Neo-Babylonians. So Babylon, of course, and the Lydian Empire, which I actually know very little about. But um, they were a force to be reckoned with in those days. So the reference to the three ribs in the mouth of the bear, it's um, after... Cyrus took the throne, he went on um, some conquests and he actually conquered three other empires. He took them and then they became the bear, if you like. They had that, that global dominion over the kingdom of men. So these three ribs um, between the teeth, he conquered three kingdoms, the Babylonians and the Lydians, as we saw from that previous article. He actually succeeded in taking both of them. And he also went down and... and um, invaded Egypt as well and conquered them too. So a successful conquest that installed them firmly as the next power, the next empire, the next beast that would rule the earth. And then at the end of that, um, verse 6, sorry, verse 5, this bear is told to arise and devour much flesh. And um, according to one article that I had a look at, um, the territory of the, the Medo-Persian Empire, it became greater and more expansive than any previous kingdom. So the appetite of the bear was large and it succeeded beyond um, any other kingdom that had come before it. So Brother Thomas, again writing about this particular beast and particularly talking about the, the way that it was told to devour much flesh, 
He says that um, just as the swift conquering of a lion and the eagle was typical of Babylon, so the bear describes the heavy aggressiveness of Medo-Persia, who put hordes of men into the battlefields and slowly crushed their victims by sheer force of numbers. So the Medo-Persian Empire and their armies were epic. They were filled with, with many, many, many warriors who overcame um, the people they were coming against just by sheer number and size. And they, they lumbered, they took a long time to, to get where they needed to be um, because of the size of their, of their empire and their army. But they did it. They conquered the earth at the time. So moving on to the third beast, this terrifying-looking creature with four wings and four heads. What on earth, you might wonder, is this beast talking about? The beast is told at the end of verse 6 also that it's told that dominion was given to it. So the empire that came after the the Medo-Persian Empire in the kingdom of men was the kingdom of Greece. Um, But before we have a look at that empire, let's just have a look at a couple of verses uh, in scripture which talk about um, a leopard and the particular traits of a leopard and what we might expect the Grecian empire to exhibit if the Grecian empire is the beast that we're looking at now. So let's just have a look at uh, Hosea chapter 13 and verse 7. I've unfortunately found it really quickly, so I'm just going to move on. Sorry if you haven't got it there. So in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 7, this is talking about Ephraim and it's talking about God punishing them for their wickedness. And it says in verse 7 of Hosea 13, I will be unto them as a lion and as a leopard, by the way, I will observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. So it's interesting, isn't it? That There's three beasts mentioned there. There's the leopard, the bear and the lion. They're all ferocious and vicious animals that are mentioned as coming against Israel, brought on Israel by God as punishment for their wickedness. And perhaps people who are familiar with these chapters when they see the vision of Daniel and read, it, read of these three beasts, maybe their mind goes back to Hosea chapter 13 and remembers these references here and the fact that God is in control. He's the one that's bringing these nations against the people of Israel. But the, the leopard here in this particular chapter is described as someone that observes them by the way. And a leopard is cunning. It'll wait for its prey and then strike with incredible power and viciousness. It's cunning and crafty and it's swift as well. It's swift and powerful. A leopard also, as I've got up there on the screen, Jeremiah 13, it talks about, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? A leopard was notorious for the spotted coat that they have. That was what it's known for in scripture. So the other thing that, of course, is noted by um, Daniel in, in, in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 is that it's got four wings on its back. So by these wings, we're expecting this creature to be fast-moving, rapid and powerful, and it's got four heads as well. 
So let's now have a look at the Grecian Empire and see whether it matches up to this particular animal. So the four heads, of the four heads, I've got an, an article here from um, a, hist- a history website and it's talking about what happened to the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great passed away. He died in Babylon, incidentally, uh, at the ripe old age of 32. So he had conquered the world, hadn't he? He'd, he'd spread the Greek Empire from one end of the earth to the other, pretty much. He had great dominion, expansive dominion, bigger than all the other kingdoms of the world before. But when he died, probably in a drunken stupor, people still to this day argue about how he died at such a young age. Maybe it was malaria, we're not sure. But his kingdom was divided after his death. And it says here in this article that his kingdom was divided among his four generals and the names of these generals um, are Lysimachus, uh, Cassander, Ptolemy I and Seleucus Nicator. Um, <clears throat> so these four generals became the um, inheritors of the global empire of the Greeks which had been headed up by Alexander the Great. And this period of time, this tumultuous period where the four heads were formed, um, is described as being particularly horrific, filled with bloodshed and intrigue, because initially the kingdom started out as 33 divisions and then finally settled into the four that we've got there on the screen. But after that happened, the Greek Empire remained in that state with those four heads Um, until it was overtaken by the following empire, which we'll consider next week. So this is all very interesting. The Greek empire did indeed have four heads. But what about the other aspects of the leopard that we were looking at before? So I've said here that his kingdom fell to the four generals, and that was how it remained. But what about these other characteristics of the leopard? So a leopard is fierce, and ferocious, it's cunning, it lies in wait sudden, and suddenly springs on the prey and also has spots. So, I mean, these characteristics do line up very well with the nation of, of Greece, the empire of Greece. The empire was, um, the expansion of the Greek empire under Alexander was nothing short of, like you'd almost say it was miraculous. It was just so swift and rapid, people were not expecting him to be coming with such speed, and he conquered the whole world by the time he was 32, as I've already mentioned. And so the description of a leopard, which is already a rapid, powerful beast, having four wings on its back, is emphasising the power and the speed of this empire, the way it could swiftly overtake and spread its influence. It's quite different to the wings of the eagle, and the emphasis that's placed there on the power of the Assyrian Babylonian Empire, which was cruel and um, far-seeing and, and, and proud, lifted up. This one was, was rapid and fast and overtook the world very quickly. As for the spots, uh, well, people, people have suggested, um, you can't be, of course, dogmatic on this, but it is interesting to say that... Um, The fact that Alexander's empire spread so wide, perhaps the spots uh, represent the sort of um, non-homogeneous 
um, construction of the empire because there were, you know, all these different um, nations that were collected under the Greek uh, umbrella, if you like, the Macedonians, the Greeks, the Thracians, the, um, the Libyans, Egyptians, um, even across into India as well. There was just all these different nations all brought together under this, this one beast empire, the empire of Greece. And it says, of course, that dominion was given to it at the end of verse um, 6 in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, as we've already noted, the kingdom of Greece certainly was given dominion. It was rapidly expanded to fill the whole earth. Now, we're going to leave it here for tonight um, and we'll pick up um, next week and continue on with the, the fourth beast. But I want to leave you with um, an exercise, perhaps for some of the kids who might be taking notes, um, because <clears throat> you might have noticed from Matt's talk last week, who was talking about Daniel chapter 2, with Nebuchadnezzar's image, if you remember, of the, the four metals, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, they line up with this vision in Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to put on the screen now um, a table uh, which you can copy down and I'll leave it up for a little while afterwards um, or perhaps you can pause it and copy it down if you want. Um, I won't mind. I, in fact, I won't even know. So um, here goes. Daniel chapter 2 on the left and Daniel chapter 7 on the right. So Nebuchadnezzar is told, you are the head of gold in Daniel chapter 2, in verses 37 and 38. And on the right, we've got that fourth, the first beast, the lion with the eagle's wings, in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 7. I can almost hear the pencils feverishly writing down in their notepads. It's great. Well done, everyone. Second, we have the chest and arms of silver in verse 39, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. And again, we've got the bear that we've talked about tonight in verse 5. The third empire was the belly and thighs of brass, the kingdom of the Greeks, which we've considered tonight as the leopard with the four heads and the four wings. And next week, God willing, we'll be looking at the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, which was the kingdom after the Greeks, the Roman Empire, and what came out of the Roman Empire, extending even right down to our day. So that's encompassing the the words relating to the fourth beast and the little horn. As I've said, we'll look at that next week. We've got the references there on the screen for you. And finally, of course, the stone that comes and smashes that image and grinds it all to powder and it's all blown away and then that stone fills the whole earth as a big mountain. It's talking about the return of Christ, isn't it? And there's numerous references, as we saw at the start of our evening together, to the Ancient of Days, to the Son of Man, to the saints who possess the kingdom. So let's just encourage ourselves now with the, the final thoughts of Daniel chapter 7 and we'll see you again next week, God willing. Verse 27. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High 